0: Welcome to the Breathe, Sleep, and Be Well podcast, where we uncover a hidden epidemic right under our noses, an epidemic that most often begins right after birth. We aim to
1: engage in casual conversation in a way that raises awareness, exposes misinformation, and challenges us to understand that just because something is common does not mean that it is normal. There is a difference between not being sick
0: and being well. In our goal of maintaining a casual conversation format, we hope that you, our listeners, will engage in the conversation through our platform. Our cardinal goal is to provide easily accessible yet accurate
1: information to the public at large and facilitate discussion between the healthcare provider and the patient in a way that targets root cause of common diseases
0: and dysfunction rather than merely managing the symptoms. I'm your co-host, Brendan Cruz and I hope to bring an understanding of social media and communication to highlight my father's journey over the past 15 years. And this is my co-host, Dr. Mark A. Cruz, who has been connecting the dots and teaching on this complicated subject since 2006. To learn more about Dr. Cruz, view his curriculum vitae at markacruzdds.com slash biographical profile. Without further ado, here's the conversation. Just subconsciously? Yes. Right. Exactly. Because they abort
1: the breath. Um, We can measure this with capnometry. I do that all the time. Uh, uh, It's a validated medical device that um, that allows for uh, measurement. The anesthesiologists will use it as a more precise metric of the respiratory status of a patient that's under general anesthesia versus say oximetry. It's moment to moment. So what happens is people will, let's say in a busy day, you can, um, you're over breathing. You abort the breath, you're breathing shallower, your chest breathing, it's a lot more effortful. And that stimulates a a low-grade fight or flight. So it's the way you know it. You might be amped. You might be focused. You're not not so much like that, but you're breathing more. But what happens is you're blowing off too much of the acid, the, the CO2. So what that means is that when you're getting rid of more of the acid, your blood pH is becoming more alkaline. It's going up higher and higher and higher. And so now the body has to respond to keep it within that narrow range. And that stimulates what's called a metabolic compensation. And one strategy is the kidneys start dumping bicarbonate, which is a base, So you get rid of the base, which elevates the blood. So again, I don't want to get too much into the pH, but there's a lot that's going on behind the the scenes physiologically. And although you could take um, breath work or yoga and doing all these things, I can argue that you should be able to breathe optimally, regardless of what task that you're involved in. So in our busy days in the West, we're constantly at go 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 go. We wake up in the morning, we have caffeine, we're uh, eating carbohydrates. That's, you know, <clears throat> raising our our our, our breath. We're alert, but we're actually not in the sweet spot physiologically that we should be. And then at the end of the day, we have to walk ourselves off the ledge if you will. That's what we call happy hour, right? You know, it's it's in our culture. Okay. I'm done, I'm off the, off the hamster you know, uh, wheel, oh, yeah. and then I, I have to try to be calm. So that all has to do with breathing. You might go to the gym, and the gym helps to reset our breathing uh, function, if you will, where we feel great at the end, and we're thinking, well, it's the endorphins. Actually, it's not. It's you're actually closer to a more physiologic state that you should
0: always be in. So we're not breathing optimally because we're breathing too quickly because we're stressed right okay and and what they do in the east or eastern medicine or yoga is is that we're adopting now the point of it is the slower breathing down is that, is that well, how that's, helps? Okay, so
1: that's one strategy. There are many, many strategies to attain what I just described. And I, I could say it goes back over 2,000 years, right? Uh, that The physiology, was it really understood as we understand now? But let, let me just maybe use a sports analogy, okay. right? Um, we certainly understand in sports if there are 10 seconds left to win the game And you have the point guard that's at the free throw line to make the two points to win by one point or to send it into overtime. You know, what do we say when he clinks the shots? They don't go in. He choked or the NFL receiver that, you know, the ball was hit him in his hands in the corner of the end zone to win the game and he drops it. So think about it. It's a very stressful situation for the athlete at that point in time. He's in battle or she's in battle and at a time where you function best when you're chill and calm. That's why the Michael Jordans and the Kobe uh, Bryants of the world you give them the ball because they're calmer than everyone else. The hoop is bigger. They can make the free throw. Well, what's going on there? It's how you breathe. If you start breathing with a fight or flight response, our athletic moves aren't quite um, as uh, as fluid So, or as precise. So we miss the free throw or the catch. Does that make
0: sense? Well... We, we say that they choked. Right. is 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 they're not breathing. We don't even understand what we're saying. I guess I can't make the connection. What what was getting me for a second there is, is athletes in a stressful situation they have a lot of adrenaline. Right? Yes. But I guess adrenaline isn't directly correlated uh, to being sh- to being stressed or is Well, it? yes, it, it is. is. It,
1: adrenaline by definition is part of the stress response. And mm-hmm. a good athlete is able to garner and control that stress okay. response. Whereas let's say the average Joe Blow, for, for, for example, uh, let's say you're in a house that's on in fire. You wake up in the middle of the night, it's burning and you have those individuals that start panicking. They run, it's dark, and they run into the walls, and they're hyperventilating, and they can't save themselves, right? They just deal with the adrenaline. It's a fight or flight adrenaline to just get them out of danger, but that actually requires some cognitive function, whereas the firefighter, who's a professional, comes in with their mask, slowly breathing, they're calm, all...
0: But they have adrenaline coursing through them too, right?
1: Well, all heck is... Is coursing through their 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 veins, but they're able to stay calm and think clearly
0: and wake um, may, and save the the lives. I guess it makes sense. Adrenaline's a dilator, right? Isn't that why they give it has uh, many effects? A, a Epipen?
1: Yeah has many effects, having to do with respiration and d- the right. distribution of gas. No question, okay. and that's a real big discussion. But what I want to focus on right now is, is in you know, that, that breathing function that allows us to slow the heart down. So there are many studies in exercise physiology looking at sports performance as it pertains to slowing the heart down and being more in that parasympathetic versus the fight or flight. And, and you slow the heart down so you're, you know, you're, you're, you're holding the gun to hit the mark, it, you're able to calm everything down. How do you do that by breathing? In fact, there's a recent FDA approved device that you've probably be hearing all over the news called Respirate to help patients that have hypertension to just be able to have this biofeedback to slow their breathing down. Hypertension meaning? Blood, high blood pressure. High blood Thanks pressure, for that. Yeah, high blood pressure. And it's been FDA approved to show you can actually slow or lower your heart rate without medication by how we breathe. So that's why people who do yoga and, and breath work
0: and meditate. So your blood pressure gets higher. They're you, healthier. Yes. Your blood pressure gets higher when you overbreathe?
1: Well, uh. It's not that easy of a question to answer, but essentially you have spikes from the stress hormones, if you will. Again, we're kind of getting into um, into the weeds a little bit. But why do athletes that are out there on the field or on the court use breathe rights? Right. It's just to get that little bit of edge for the na- to dilate the nasal valves to get better of uh, distribution of the oxygen through the release of nitric oxide through breathing more optimally the way we were designed to breathe and what's happened in the west in our you know uh, 21st century is we just don't realize how the traffic the stress our boss our to-do list is altering our breathing we're in this go to battle in this constant state of Overventilating that causes anxiety, depression, irritable bowel syndrome, high blood pressure. And then we go to fall asleep and it continues when our airway is even more vulnerable. So there are all these things that are causing, bottom line, inflammation in the body. And inflammation is the body's way of telling us something is not right. And the body's constantly trying to address that behind the scenes, and what we've learned in an allopathic healthcare system is to treat the symptom with a medication. It could be a proton pump inhibitor for acid reflux, it could be a medication to calm us down, um, to slow the heart rate down, et cetera, et cetera.
0: So, okay, I understand that what I, what I gathered from that, right, is that we have to slow our breathing down. One way or another, we overbreathe, due to stress, okay? But sh- should everyone just be meditating? Like, should I meditate or should well, I... Well, no,
1: should, yeah, so this is... Should it, I it, do breath work? So this is, yeah, so here's... This is the interesting thing. I'm not going to even say necessarily to slow your breathing down. It's about what's called, I'm going to use a term... It's called end-tidal CO2. And what that describes is the amount of reserve carbon dioxide that we should have in our lungs. And that's been very well defined as a biologic imperative, meaning it, 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 we're supposed to have this. It's 35, you can measure it, 35 millimeters of mercury, it, which measures the, the pressure, if you will, that's in our lungs. Optimally it should be closer to 40 maybe up to 45 millimeters during the day um, That and what that portends to is Breathing stability, so let me give you an example someone who's in chronic pain when they're in chronic pain They're breathing more like what's called agonal breathing. You know, it's not it's just dis- dis- disordered breathing their shallower breaths more often but that breathing behavior that they can control actually blows off too much carbon dioxide so the studies show that if you doing that for more than six to eight hours again let's look at um, a chronic pain patient for more than six to eight hours the body always wants homeostasis it's going to lock you into that breathing pattern by compensating metabolically through the kidneys that It's all to maintain a blood pH within this very, very narrow range so that you don't get sick or symptomatic. Those patients are struggling constantly and they will use the adrenaline response, if you will, to maintain that, to run the engine hot. They're able to breathe. They're able to live. They're in chronic pain, but they're not well. Okay, they're not optimal. So that's one example. But most of us in the west with our busy lifestyles are waking up already behind the eight ball and we're overventilating. all the things that we do environmentally we can get into a whole list and so if you want to be calm let's say you're going to be taking a test you don't want to be in an adrenaline response because you have vasodilation when you are in parasympathetic uh, coherence when you're on the other side of the autonomic, of what we call rest and digest so when you're Uh, Very clear thinking because you slowed your breathing down and a lot of blood going to the brain It allows us to think more clearly to recall more clearly to solve problems More clearly and we do that moment to moment in our days So if you can get to that point and overcome that metabolic compensation with a physiologic um, Approach if you will to keep that as your set point um, always, regardless of what you're doing, then you will have arrived. But the problem is people will go to the gym or they'll take breath work or they'll do yoga on occasion to do something that the body should already do competently, always. And automatically, right? Automatically, this is what we call a compensation. And we don't recognize it for what it is because it's so common, it's just the way it is. So we're finding out now from studies that it's very pro-inflammatory. Again, I talked about it the last time. We have upregulated TNF-alpha-IL6, highly sensitive C-reactive protein. These are names, fancy names for these molecules that are putting our body in high alert that um, cause us to always be compensating and create a lot of signs and symptoms where we're chronically, chronically sick. And, And so... Um, breathing is a very very important moment to moment and we just haven't learned to do that very well other than by talking about different modalities that will help us from time to time mm-hmm. when we perceive that we need
0: it i'm when going you're to argue of it but when you're subconsciously it, it, it should be happening breathe. subconsciously so when i'm taking a test and i'm I'm just subconsciously over-breathing. What's the practical take-home advice I could do to, to
1: first perform? First, understand it's a behavior that you control it. Okay. okay? And, and so you can, you know, calm yourself, slow down. You also become less emotional, too. That's the other thing. When you're emotional, you don't think as well because that's a more How do I slow
0: down? How do I calm down?
1: You just slow your breathing down, breathe through your nose, take a deep breath. You're sending a message back to your brainstem. You're metabolizing uh, and retaining more carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide, not oxygen. It's the carbon dioxide that tells our breath, our brain, to take the next breath.
0: In through the nose, out through the mouth. How to, yes. Uh, yes. In yes. through the
1: nose, out through the in, mouth. Through the nose, um, in through the nose, out through the nose. Unless okay. you're a big athletic you know, where you need, you're need you moving more uh, um, tidal volume, then, then that's a different story. Then you can exhale through the mouth. But optimally, and that takes training. You know, it takes time to really learn that that is a very basic um, function, moment to moment. And, you know, uh, therein lies you know, the problem is we've just kind of accepted it as, well, we're breathing, we're alive. You know, the anxiety has to do with my boss or the traffic not really realizing because we conflate physiologic stress with psychological stress. And I'll argue that most of the stress that we have, or a a lot of the stress that we have, has a physiologic basis for it, first and foremost. But psychological stress has a part of the brain that can access the language center or the language part of our brain that we can express it, physiologic stress does not. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't get really represented. So we think, oh, I'm, I'm really anxious right now. It must be the last thing that I do. It must be my to do. I just call that life. Our ability to deal with life, if you are breathing optimally, it becomes much easier. It's not going to change the fact that there's a tragedy or that there's a stressor or that, you know, but your ability to deal with it becomes. You become more competent at it if you've got if you're if you're functioning optimally with your breathing behavior, and so some of the things that we talk about are the structure and the function, the structure, the size of our airway, how our faces grow, which we'll get into facial beauty and uh, facial attractiveness, which is our next topic, but it has a physiologic basis. That's the point. It has a physiologic basis. Form follows function. That sometimes is not
0: recognized. So ninety percent of the time, when I'm driving, when I'm taking a test, I should be breathing in through my nose, out through my nose. Ninety to ninety-five percent of the time. Ninety to ninety-five yes, percent. Yeah, and there, there,
1: there the there's okay. data to uh, more recent data that actually has shown that.
0: And if I'm jogging, in through the nose, out through the mouth.
1: Yeah, that that's fine. Mm-hmm. And, but just notice if you start doing that, let's say you get on the treadmill or on your pel- Peloton, start off through your nose consciously as you're metabolizing, you know, as you're working. And then you might find that, you know, it takes you five minutes before you start breathing more through the mouth. Mm. And, then, and then a week later, because you're consciously making this effort, it takes maybe 10 minutes. Okay, And then uh, a month from now, it takes you a half hour before you get to the point where you're now sucking wind through your... Uh, what you're doing is you're, fun- you're functioning better more efficiently, the way you were designed. We used to, back in the day in the Paleolithic period, we used to run down deer for survival. We would just keep on running, 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 running. We were we just very competent in it. We were breathing through our noses, um, uh, and and we've kind of lost that a, a, a little bit, and and so. Um, we're seeing it, and how our faces are developed. There are lots of anthropology studies looking at that, but that's another topic. So if welcome.
0: I'm if I'm running or if I'm doing cardio, I should be breathing through my nose as long as I can. Yes. Until. Yes. I can't until right. I have to breathe in through my nose, out through my mouth. Right. And okay. there's a
1: okay. So let me just say there's a fly in the ointment, hmm. as the saying says, that if you have let's say a very narrow arch, you know palate. Mm -hmm. You're also going to have a very narrow, the roof of your mouth. Mm -hmm. You have a very narrow base of the nose Um, or if you have a deviated septum Mm -hmm. uh, where you can't breathe through one side very well, or you have swollen turbinates. These are these bony structures. These bony structures that you see here that um, are have become enlarged that limit the amount of air coming in. And then you're going to do more mouth breathing, right? So uh, again, that's where we have to address the uh, the um, the structural risk factors
0: okay. that are involved. So, when you say the airway, physically, um, where is it? It's the holes. so
1: okay. So the the primary it's is the primary is coming in through this bony structure, mm-hmm. which has a, a a fleshy surrounding cartilage and and a tissue, right? Soft tissue, and that goes in through the nose, right. okay, and then it comes out through the outside part of it, okay, this is the nasal pharynx, the bony uh, borders of the nasal pharynx, important part of the airway. Well, what's happened in the last 500 years is this has become narrower. Mm. Uh, it's much narr- more narrow than it was uh, you know, in the Paleolithic period, so certainly early be, medieval.
0: Yeah, used to be breathing out of a milkshake straw an Mu- yeah,
1: yeah, much larger. And, and the way we see it in our modern society is teeth that are crowded because the arches, the yeah, teeth that are- I
0: was going to say, you did, you did braces on them, huh?
1: You do braces to, tr- I, I argue, to over-treat the wrong problem. Dental crowding is not really a tooth problem. It's a bone problem. There isn't enough expression of facial growth. And why is that important? Because that facial growth largely is driven by the growth of the airway. Hmm. And so there's where we start having these compensations with our breathing and ends up affecting our sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a-
0: So you're telling me you didn't do braces on him? A-
1: Well, this uh, skull is about a hundred years old. It's typical of what we would see. And the teeth Uh, are pretty straight. And the teeth are very straight. There were no braces, you know, back in, you know, in India a hundred years ago. You know, I mean, you know, as we define it now, um, that just happened naturally. And you can go back thousands of years to digs all over the planet. As we talked about last time, dental crowding was rare Mm-hmm. In fact, so was dental decay. But dental crowding was rare. The teeth were straight. You know, you don't take any mammal, you know, killer whales or, you know, or monkeys or you don't put them in braces. But if you look at their skulls and you look at their arches, their teeth are straight. Right. You know, it's because they, they are growing as, as nature has intended but we've radically changed our environment. Yes, to the better for the most part in modern human society, but there are some um, problems with that. And we, again, we tend to treat a symptom like dental crowding as if that's the problem. In fact, sometimes we'll even pull teeth out to accommodate the the teeth, and that makes the problem worse. Yes, we straighten the teeth out, but we
0: make the airway uh, smaller because there's less tongue space. Are you telling me that Straight aesthetic teeth are an indicator for your health your airway health Um, not by itself you know that's somewhat contrived Um, it's
1: not so much that the teeth are straight it's that um, you know the arches are wide in fact it's more attractive if you look at an individual that has a really you can have someone that has very straight teeth Mm -hmm. but a very narrow arch that's not not naturally though no, no, they, they went, let, let's say they had they braces. T- they had braces, right? So their teeth are like perfectly straight, but they're narrow, okay? Versus somebody who never had braces, but they have a very wide arch. And maybe the teeth aren't perfectly straight, but if you look at that same person in both those, uh, those expressions, hands down, the person that has the broader smile if you will is going to be more attractive looking
0: okay and then also healthier could you ever see someone with straight teeth but a narrow palate just naturally like if they didn't have any treatment
1: well yeah it happens naturally all the time in this environment but that's naturally not
0: without treatment does it happen
1: well of course it does but it's the exception rather than the rule i think the The better question, if I may, uh, to ask is, you know, what is it supposed to look like? What are we supposed to look like in the environment from which we
0: evolved? Which Mm -hmm. is the Paleolithic environment. The broad... uh, Yes. um, So how how do you have a a broad palette? Is it genetic? Well, it starts from
1: um, when you're born. Actually, we can argue it starts at the beginning of the third trimester, but we're not going to talk about that. Well let's say once you're born, the infant immediately, naturally, like every other mammal, is supposed to latch onto mom to nurse. Okay, So that's just one example of what we've radically changed because we can in our species, where bottle feeding comes about uh, around. And yes, we're feeding the infant immediately, oftentimes unwittingly not understanding the functional and structural risk factors that were baking into that growth and development of that child that may manifest in any of a number um, ADD, ADHD, allergies, um, high, you know, all kinds of problems. So it starts with the latch, proper latch that requires more muscle uh, muscle. Uh, Function to grow the face forward. It's the muscles that grow our face forward. So they're
0: not experiencing enough enough muscle function when they're bottle feeding. Right, right. So
1: that's one example. Okay. And uh, and then now they're swallowing very different. So just think about it. When a baby latches on, they're eating and breathing at the same time. So they're not mouth breathing. They're breathing through the nose while they're also suckling. Right? And so... That function is what allows... Wait, our, is
0: that possible to swallow and breathe at the same time? 100%. Not for us. No, there's, no, a, mo- there's, a,
1: there's a momentary pause at the moment of what's called deglutition, that, that swallow.
0: Oh, so they but swallow, a,
1: then breathe. There's a cadence, yes. And by the way, that, that cadence is different for different people. It could be like three three sucks, two breaths... One suck, two breaths. Why is that? Uh, it, it's just, it, it, it's what's called a central pattern generated. It's something that's part of the neurology from uh, transitioning from fetal respiration to uh, breathing atm- atmospheric um, air. Okay. Um, and it doesn't matter, but that we hold on to for the rest of our life. Um, but that's called the primitive uh, reflex that gets replaced with what's called a mature swallow. And so now we're starting to go down. Well, what do you mean
0: that, that stays with us the rest of our life? Are you saying the pattern? Yes. That, it's, really?
1: That, that, that brain pattern stays with us the rest of our to life. To do
0: what? When we eat uh, or drink?
1: Well, it, it's it, it's in the background, but that pattern is supposed to be replaced with a higher order um, uh, F- uh, function. Right a higher order central pattern generator think of it as software so we're born immediately with uh, a very basic um, light light color. software yeah. that as the brain grows through function and and behavior and all that gets replaced with more and more sophisticated software mm-hmm. if you will we're always uh, and, and so yeah.
0: yeah, consciousness being at the forefront, that could kind of override everything, right? Well, I mean, just when we're talking about breathing, it goes from a subconscious thing that I'm doing to so active. Like I've, I've been thinking about the way I'm breathing this whole, this whole yeah. time, but I, otherwise, I never think of how I'm breathing.
1: Yeah, so you bring up a good point. I'm talking right now what's called <laughs> oral tidal breathing. It's because I have that ability that no other mammal has that I can actually express take pockets of air using my tongue and my lips to make sounds that our brains perceive as language, right? Okay. So that's what allowed us to land a man on the moon and grow our brain. But I'm actually blowing off a lot of CO2. And if I keep on doing this, I'm a little lightheaded right now mm-hmm. because of that, uh, some constriction, And so my adrenaline is actually kicking in to help me with that. So I'm a little bit more animated. So talk to anybody now, Wake up in the morning. You have your coffee, and you start talking. And then you have some carbohydrates, and you're feeding those carbs. And pretty soon, people are doing that. I mean, you think about little kids. They go to school, and they come back, and they're talking to mom. And they come back from school and they go, "Mom, and, and little Johnny, he he was chasing me during recess." And, and they're talking oh, like that, this. That and, was
0: actually a good impression of, yeah, of how. Yeah,
1: yeah. A lot of us do that, and they're in a little adrenaline uh, uh, state and they're bouncing off the walls and they're hyperactive and mom may say, oh, that's just, you know, he's rambunctious, it's his personality trait, it's actually physiology. That's representative of
0: something unhealthy?
1: Well, it's just uh, a breathing behavior that is not healthy that can create lots of problems uh, for that kid. And what do we do? We medicate them because they can't pay attention. How do you fix little Johnny? Oh, boy. that's Well, first, it's early, uh, early diagnosis. And... Um, to get them um, structurally where they should be looking at how you know how they're breathing how they're developing this is the problem in pediatrics is that there are these well checks they're not looking at or asking those questions they're just you know uh, i mean maybe they'll look at the tonsils once they're already enlarged because there's been so much mouth breathing now we're stepping in once the fire has already consumed the house, there it's you know they're not really um, set to to detect the small kitchen fire, mm-hmm. right, so to speak, and to nip it at the bud. It's just not what we do in an allopathic allopathic healthcare system that's very siloed. But
0: we're you know, talking about the nursing's effect. But uh, one thing that's really big right now is having the tongue on the roof of the mouth. Yes would should you uh, look at little Johnny and see if he maintains a yes. tongue posture on the roof of the mouth versus hanging on the? Yes. So I would say a more prescriptive
1: um, predictable approach would be to have within the first five years of life, and and actually sooner rather than later is to have a good sleep and language pathologist or an occupational therapist that's trained in looking at these benchmarks so they're very well defined where for example um johnny starts chewing wings and starts chewing initially it's just a vertical chew, straight up and down the neurology in the brain hasn't developed enough to have a transverse stroke that might occur at uh, uh, 12 months, a transverse stroke. What do you mean? Meaning that they are able to chew, uh, more on one side than the other. They just, you know, chew. as an example. So when you're really young, you automatically chew on both sides. Well, it, it typically, let me just say that it's a, it's a vertical chew. And then when you start a, a more advanced chew pattern, because there's more advanced neurology that's developed, is more of a, a elliptical, you know, think... Like of I
0: chew on the left side of my mouth, I chew on the it's right side
1: Right, In And that's just
0: automatic, I, where I get... Yes, evenly? that's the
1: way we're designed. Really? We, go, we, we can get into uh, all that. We do Why not chew advanced? on both sides at the same time. But when you're young, you do? Uh, not... When you're young, not necessarily, it's just vertical that you may be chewing it on both sides at the same time, but also look at the types of food that you're chewing at that time. It's it's less complex. They cannot, they don't have the neurology to address structurally more complex food. So that's why an occupational therapist has these benchmarks at where the neurology has developed at 12 months, at 14 months, at 18 months. So there, there are ways that they look at that, and there are therapies that are implemented to reverse that that are science based, based on studies. So you could see that there's a failure to thrive. Johnny is uh, the weight's not gaining the weight. Um, it takes them a long time to chew, or they're a very messy eater. Um, there are many reasons, largely, oftentimes, to protect the airway so they don't choke, because there's a uh, lack of development in the proper neurology of their uh, uh, of their chewing uh, function that's intricately related to breathing. You can't separate the two. Interesting. Interesting. So the ch- the chewing patterns are related to breathing. that's Hundred percent. Really. Hundred percent. You you'll choke. It's no small matter. I mean, choking okay. accidents that's are the fourth wise. leading cause of death in accidental death okay in 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 the west okay that's not a small number there's no other mammal that has that problem and we talked about that that last time well that's driven by the software the neurology and yet you know we're just assuming that johnny's developing properly when they go to the pediatrician or they go to the dentist because we're focusing on maybe tooth decay or you know um other things, dental crowding, other things, we're kind of distracted by signs or symptoms where it's really the neurology we should be looking at. And you find that that kid doesn't sleep really well. They don't breathe really well. So let me give you an example. Um, we know about, you know, the little toddler that's just learned to walk. And they're running around in their pull-up, right? They're running around. And everyone sees, oh, this got cute. It's kind of like you know, that that toddler walk because their brain hasn't developed the more sophisticated, smooth gait that they will. And then they fall asleep. And how do they fall asleep? With their butt in the air. Their little butt up in the air. You know, we call that the tripod (laughs) position. And, you know, grandma says, oh, look how cute little bug is up not realizing that that child is hypoxic and they're in trouble. Their neck is hyperextended. They're falling asleep. The only way they can breathe moment to moment the other one is they're hypoxic what is hypoxic mean? meaning they don't have enough oxygen they're struggling to get that oxygen opening up the airway they might have some congested their neck is hyperextended and they're resting in a way they can maintain the airway here's the other one How, why
0: are they struggling to get oxygen they they're
1: uh, because they uh, it, it's a developmental a problem their palate may be narrow they might have some swelling in the uh in their tonsils because um they don't get enough m- mouth eating. from their uh from the way they nursed that could start that okay. could start the process there are Good. many but how about the other one where the only way that the baby falls asleep or the toddler falls asleep was they're in the car seat and we're thinking it's the white noise that's rocking them to sleep and soothing them actually not yes that will help but their brain is in this fight or flight because they're trying to uh, breathe. And the way they can breathe the best, they can't breathe laying down or on their stomach so well. So they're in the car seat and you know they'll move their head and they'll be, be able to breathe better eventually than if they're laying down. Interesting, it kind of yeah. forces
0: them into a good breathing posture. A better breathing
1: posture, not a good one, a, a better one. Okay. And if you watch the, those kids, oftentimes they're struggling to breathe. Their chest muscles are really pumping. If you, if you know what to look for, if you take the little jaw and you pull it forward, open the airway, they calm down. Really? The, the, the breathing becomes quiet. So a child or an adult or a teenager, when they breathe, should breathe like a little mouse, silent, quiet, no turbulence, silent and quiet. If you're sick and you have congestion, that's a different story. And of course you feel it, but by and large, anything that inflames the the tissue along the airway that creates turbulence is a a problem and we see it all the time.
0: So how should adults breathe? Also quietly? Quiet, no snoring and um, How quiet, so quiet that You can't I hear it. I myself can't hear you, my you, own you, breathing you, or my you, neighbor you, can't.
1: You can't hear it. Really? You cannot hear it. You How you hear that? There, you could just see the chest breathing. But again, you don't see that very often because they're breathing and they wake up in the morning.
0: How can I get enough oxygen in daily life if I'm breathing
1: that quietly? You don't have to worry about getting oxygen. This is the other misnomer. There's plenty of oxygen In the air, the better question is, how can I distribute that oxygen that I take in? Okay. And how do you do that? With carbon dioxide. Having enough CO2 in your lungs to have breathing uh, stability. Let me just really go down this little rabbit hole a little bit. I think it's really important if I can. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, because you asked the question. Okay, Um, just a little physiology. So the hemoglobin that carries four molecules of oxygen that we use for work to metabolize, every cell in the body needs that, is released as a function of the gradient of carbon dioxide. So let me give you an example. If I'm doing bicep curls in the gym, okay, there's work going on in my bicep, right? Metabolism. I'm using glucose and I'm creating a lot of CO2. So the CO2 levels in that muscle go up. So the blood coursing through that muscle that's uh, the hemoglobin that's carrying that oxygen says, hey, there's a lot of CO2 here. Work must be happening. So the bond between the oxygen and the hemoglobin is loose. So it really easily releases the oxygen to feed those cells to do work. If you're not working and it's just resting, there's not a lot of CO2. And so the oxygen bond to the hemoglobin is a stronger because it's not really needed there. And this is, this is what's called the Bohr effect, you know, it's called, um, uh, uh, it, it, well, we won't get into it beyond just uh, saying that that's important. So how we breathe, there's this metabolic pathway of how it's supposed to happen optimally to distribute the oxygen that's already, we're taking in enough oxygen. So, right, and you said we're over-breathing earlier. Well, we're over-breathing, or I think it's almost silly, somebody that's walking around with supplemental oxygen to put more oxygen in, that's not really the problem. And yet it's done all the time. They're prescribed supplemental oxygen. It's just they're, not, they're breathing dysfunctionally. They don't have enough CO2. So um, I, I think it's, 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 it's just silly. It's like waking somebody up to give them a sleeping pill. Actually, it's more having to do with you know, uh, breathing properly. Now, if they're not breathing properly, there are some things that can be done and it can have some benefit, don't get me wrong, but I think we're oftentimes missing the problem because we just
0: assume that proper breathing is happening. And more often than not, it's not. Practically, or you said I should be breathing like a mouse, like you shouldn't even be able to hear it. Yes. Okay, but practically what do I do to distribute the oxygen correctly?
1: Oxygen. Let the brain, let the brain stem do that with um proper breathing so that the amount of co2 that's in the bloodstream that courses through the blood-brain barrier tells your brain
0: how to breathe but i mean when i take deep breaths i can hear it so i shouldn't be breathing deeply and exhaling okay so we're talking
1: about sleep right no
0: i i'm not talking about sleep i'm thinking like i'm taking a test
1: okay when you're taking a test optimally you should not be hearing any breathing, any resistance. Okay, but how, how do I achieve? Breathe normally with a really good airway, tongue on the roof of the mouth, calmly with your diaphragm. So we, you know, we say there are five competences that every human should have to have this optimal. When I say competence, meaning that they do it easily and do it well. The first one is nasal breathing. therein lies a a problem. And by the way, nasal surgery is not the answer most of the time. So breathing through the nose optimally, easily, with low resistance. The second thing is lips together. Tongue on the roof of the mouth with what we call a mature swallow. Non-collapsing airway during sleep. And diaphragmatic breathing. If you have those functions optimally, Everything takes care of itself. Unfortunately, very interesting. Uh, any one of those is, is not working properly, then you're going to end up having a compensation that results in signs and symptoms. And we're just often it's not trained to detect that because we're just assuming you're breathing, you're okay. Um, it's not until you take a blood pressure or you see some you know
0: clenching or grinding or
1: see some other symptom that you treat that downstream symptom.
0: So bring me through that again, cause I'm thinking very practically, like what can I do to go home and be a better breather? You said, you said I have to be able to breathe through my nose easily. What, what else? Uh, uh, again, to summarize, breathe through the
1: nose, uh, 90, 95% of the time. Okay. Okay. Obviously if you're talking or you're, 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 um, Uh, vigorous exercise, different story, right? The body can handle that. Um, Lips together, okay? So when the lips are together, the tongue is likely on the roof of the mouth. If you separate the lips a little bit, you'll feel the tongue drop. So when the tongue's on the roof of the mouth, it closes off the oropharynx forcing nasal breathing or supporting nasal breathing. And then when you swallow, that swallow also allows for proper uh, movement of the bolus of food or the saliva so you don't choke. And then the other is having the pharynx, the airway in the throat, um, so that it doesn't collapse. Like snoring is when the airway is collapsing. You don't want that. What do,
0: I can't control that, though. Can well, I?
1: you can. If you're doing that, you have to look at how do you reverse that. Don't just accept that. We know that, especially in children, we know it's super pro-inflammatory during the developmental. Uh, it's, it's, it's a real bad risk factor. For health, long term. By the way, well, how do I control it? The snoring, you have to look, diagnose, and look at the structure mm. and the function okay. to see what's like. There's too much swelling in the nose, or mm. the tonsils are too enlarged, or the adenoids, or whatever the case may be. There's too much turbulence, and the solution is or isn't to get those removed. It, it's hopefully catching the problem earlier where you don't have to where you don't have okay. to making sure that, that there's proper facial growth and development okay and then of course diaphragmatic breathing so any so of breathing
0: those breathing from like my stomach
1: not from my the chest. diaphragm from the diaphragm not from your stomach necessarily from the diaphragm and so that you're connected to it and that gets into a whole other discussion but you know that doesn't necessarily mean a specific rate it, bottom line it's to maintain optimal and tidal co2 that you can measure
0: so i need to be able to do that subconsciously yes okay but how do that happens at the brainstem how do i train my subconscious okay so okay so
1: you bring up a really very good point again that's missed with people that are talking about breath work and meditation and yoga and and so let's go back to the concept that breathing is a behavior and as my what friend... do you mean by that? Do you mean it's a me explain. conscious behavior or subconscious behavior? Let me behavior? explain, yes. This is what um, you know. my good friend, world-renowned physiologist Peter Litchfield would say. Remember that behavior is physiology in action. It's our body behind the scene that is fostering a certain function that we could see as a behavior, but we can control it consciously and subconsciously. So, for example. Breathing is a behavior because you breathe differently, whether you're talking, you're in a good mood, bad mood. uh, But the other thing that can happen is there are triggers. There are psychological triggers that can cause uh, disordered breathing. So I'll use this classic example. Let's say you're a six-year-old girl, little girl, that is in first grade, and you're on the front row because your your last name ends in a right and you have a big burly male teacher with a big beard that has a very deep voice that is intimidating because this guy reminds you of your uncle who you're scared of for whatever reason right so when you're in that situation where you're sitting there and he's standing right over in front of you you might have this subconscious trigger to overventilate. You start hyperventilating because that causes what's called dissociation. You start, you know, disconnecting psychologically to the moment. You kind of go off into the dream state, if you will, because you're you're, uh, vasoconstricting, you're over-breathing, and you find that that serves you for that moment to protect you from, psychologically, from that situation. So then, you know, little Joni uh, grows up and now she's in high school and she's in a similar situation and she's subconsciously not aware that she's now starting to do that dissociation behavior. And then now she's, you know, married and has three kids and anytime she's in a similar stressful response, she goes into this physiologic reflex. There's a trigger there. So the therapy is really looking at what are those triggers. That's just one example that's causing you to disorder your breathing that locks you into bad breathing uh, pattern. That same mom may take a yoga class or breath work or even be an instructor to overcome some of these behaviors, not recognizing that there's this underlying uh, trigger that is causing that. So there's a lot of physiology, a lot of therapy And I'm not talking about psychological therapy, but looking at, okay, so what are those triggers? And so, um, you know, uh, so I, I think that's a huge knowledge void when we're talking about breath work and breathing and yoga and proper breathing. That's not recognized is that there are subconscious triggers and to get to the root cause of that disorder breathing often is addressing that behavior those triggers. And so there's a whole uh, science validated approach. You you know, you get your master's in learning just how to do that Mm -hmm. based on understanding physiology. Okay, breathing physiology, acid-base balance, and all those types of things. So the the point is I want an appreciation. I I want to um, express that we have to have an appreciation for, you know, the behavior piece, the physiology
0: behind it. Okay. And so how you act, uh, physiology, uh, that manifests in your facial structure, how you look, aesthetics, how? I, I, okay, so now we're getting
1: into a... Um, the next topic. Uh, the next topic. Um, just to kind of clear this up, can I use an example that, uh, again, my friend Dr. Litchfield talked about, and there are volumes of, of research in physiology looking at these types of things. So. He talks about uh, this uh, well-studied, well-known study in physiology um, circles, if you will, where they take these chick embryos, right? They're eggs that are under a heat lamp. And you have a a thermocoupler, and you, you, uh, you can actually measure the heart rate of the embryo as it's developing in that little egg. And... It's connected to the light such that the embryos understand that the higher they, they raise their heart rate, it makes the heat lap become warmer. So they can alter their wow. oh. heart rate based on the benefit physiologically they get. They want uh, more heat. That's you know really well described. These are just embryos. So right? the experiment was set up so that the heat would raise if right. they- And here's it. the interesting thing. Okay. They reversed it to where when they actually, they put a trigger, remember I'm talking about triggers? They reversed this trigger that if they did that, the heart rate actually cooled the lamp down and they didn't like that. And what was found is very, very quickly the chick embryos learned, it's a learned behavior, to reverse it. So when the stimulus came in, they actually um, uh, reversed the initial criteria of the heart rate, that they were able to slow their heart rate down to increase the heat. The main point is that this behavior is physiologically founded that served a purpose for the embryos. So there are volumes on physiologic studies looking at how it serves the host. So I want to end with that to say that our breathing serves us to some extent. Some of these triggers will serve us to solve an immediate problem. But what we oftentimes don't understand is the price it's paid for the disordered breathing that are more downstream. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is get to what nature wants, optimally what we're designed for, to have wellness versus not being sick. And so we can end this segment, you know, looking at that, and based on our questions that come up, we can take a deeper dive. Yeah. But you know, you can really get into the weeds with this science, and this podcast is really not meant to get too deeply into some of the physiologies right, just right. that have this, uh, I guess, a better appreciation that things are not always as simple as you hear on the internet as to how easy it is to change some very important um, right. function.
0: It is really interesting how we can program behavior like that. Yes. I, I think of science very practically. I, I want to know how it could serve me, right? I, like we learn all, all this, yes. and I just want to know how I could use it to benefit my life. Right. So I, I want to know how I can program myself to do certain things, kind of how they programmed um the, the chick. yeah uh, right right
1: how about this you've heard of the Russian scientist Pavlov right yeah Pavlov so yeah, yeah. he had a ring and he caused he was able to measure these dogs salivating right. okay. yeah, based on the ring okay. right okay they also have studies with mice that they can actually measure release of insulin from the pancreas as a behavior as well so you can have these triggers to release what otherwise might be considered an autonomic uh, so that starts getting into diet and metabolic disorders and things like that. But we'll we just end it at this, uh, at, you know, I think with this, uh, this discussion. Okay. But thank you very
0: much. Yeah. An, an, oh, you, I want to talk about aesthetics really quickly. Sure. Um, there's kind of an interesting theory and it makes sense to me. Right. And I think most people are familiar with this theory. Um, it kind of goes as this. Right, uh, when we're looking to mate, right, we look for aesthetics, or there's some sense of aesthetics. You know, we could have um, uh, preferences, but generally, there's a, a common um, uh, sense of aesthetic that that we look for in a face. Um, and why is that? Well, why would we look for aesthetic? It's because it's representative of health. Yes. That's correct. Yes. But um, I want to know how breathing uh, ties into the aesthetics, because it would make sense to me, under the assumption that that theory is true, that I would want to mate or reproduce with someone that's healthy because they're breathing healthily. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay.
1: So I think the best way to tackle this topic, to start it, is let's just start from the beginning and, and see if you agree with this. Okay. I, I think most people would say, if you look at a face, high cheekbones, uh, good strong jaw, good sure. straight profile, Right. you know, you could start thinking of, I uh, just thinking of, let's say, actors, you know, if you're female, Brad Pitt, right? I mean, he's considered attractive. Look mm-hmm. at his face. Uh, Angelina Jolie, right? You look at her face, look at their profiles. Mm-hmm. Um, I always joke about, you know, how um, people, women especially, but men too, will look at just voluptuous, beautiful lips, and you have these fillers to try to make them to kind of fake it. Yeah, why are why are
0: big lips attractive? Well, why it's is it, we 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 could talk about that. Uh, for sure. But you're telling me though, that that's representative of someone that's healthy. Well, what happens is,
1: is that when you have a really good facial bony structure, it supports the soft tissue that, that, that uh, defines the lips when your jaw is not far enough forward. So the further forward, that high cheekbone that, as I used to tell my residents at UCLA, bone sets the tone, but tissue is the issue. Tissue being the soft tissues, what we see but there's no amount of Restylane that's a that's that's a substitute for having good bony support. In fact, how we age also is a function of having more bone volume in our face. We're not getting the same bone volume that we used to, and it starts with the upper jaw first, and then it allows the lower jaw to come forward. But but again, with Angelina Jolie, you look at her profile that. Uh, the, you can measure the nasolabial angle and you see that large lip where you know it, the the full lip is expressed and we have and a photo of
0: this on your Instagram as well. Uh, yes, yeah.
1: yes, exactly. So those are markers, uh primitive markers for uh for health. You know, the head is upright, like they're confident because they could breathe and and so there are a number of these uh these markers if you will. So let's just start with I think most people would agree that a more uh, that would be more of a description of of a more attractive face type versus, let's say, they're very narrow, um, (coughs) very weak jaw. That's when you look on profiles way back, far back, and and very thin upper lips and. There are so a lot of uh, markers that we actually measure.
0: So thin lips aren't necessarily attractive because it's an indicator of, of health. Or a deficiency.
1: The of, there's a facial, deficiency. There's a facial deficiency, but, but let's just say, as Don Endel, the grandfather of craniofacial biology, uh, defined decades ago and a lot of science, uh, to look at this, that the airway, is the keystone for the face. So when we're born, uh, it, w- what uh, what is driving that growth to a great extent is the airway to take that next breath. So um, that ends up uh, turning into um, a facial, uh, a face that either didn't grow right because there are all these restrictors that we just talked about, mouth breathing, the there's vertical growth versus forward growth. But I I, I wanted to start off with what the definition is, if we could agree that maybe that most people would agree that that's uh, a description of a more attractive face versus one that's not so much. Now, it's not to say that that individual can't have a great personality and have a big bank account to make them attractive from a psychosocial point of view. Mm -hmm. But if we're looking just at primitive drive, there was a study that was done uh, and is published in the plastic surgery uh, um, journals. and I can't remember right off hand the journal. Uh, Basically, they took um, uh, a group of women in developing countries that didn't really have exposure to TV and the movies and all that. And what they did, the researchers, what they did is they took uh, a stack of pictures of faces, male actors or male faces that were well-known, that were considered attractive at the time. They had square jaws um, forward face, high cheekbones, you know, that confident look. Right. <clears throat> and then they took a matched, um, contemporary, uh, uh, group of faces pi- pictures of faces that were more contemporary, like more in the last so just normal decades p- oh, yeah, okay, so. of actors as well. So they're looking oh, at actors okay. back in the forties and the fifties, for example, compared to actors that were in the 80s and 90s. Got it. Because those faces matched, were were very different. Okay. And interestingly, hands down, the women, 10 for 10, pretty much, all of them, picked the actors and their profiles and the facial types of the older actors from the 40s and the 50s in comparison to the actors that were considered, you know... Sex symbols, if you will.
0: Really? So they picked even like very attractive actors from the 90s? In comparison. They were given a
1: choice where they were matched. And hands down. And so now we start looking into, you know, this primitive drive. You don't know what they are, how much money they have, how successful, how charismatic they are. But just from a very primitive drive, what is it that you're looking at? So what we see is those faces are more what we call Paleolithic. They were closer to the way we're supposed to develop um, as hunters and gatherers. You know, strong jaw. Even
0: in the 50s and 60s? Yes. Why and it's
1: accelerated.
0: That? Why is that? Why, were, why do they look so different? Just Because in it's
1: radically term? changed. Even, even though this has been going on for more than 500 years, there's this inflection that it's accelerating now. There's studies to show, for example, dental crowding globally is now well into the 90s. So it's, it's a problem that's increasing. Type two diabetes, just in the last 30, 40 years, the incidence is growing higher and higher. We used to, when I was in dental school, they used to call it type two diabetes, adult onset diabetes. They don't call that, that anymore. Why? Because you have kids done. now that are yeah. nine and 10 and younger that are, that have type two diabetes. It's an acquired condition. So that's not even
0: just because of the diet. It's more than no, just that.
1: no, it's it's more than just diet. It just that's just throwing fuel on the fire. That's already smoldering. That's a big discussion. It's many things. It's many okay. things. But, um, you know, I, I guess the point I'm making is the hardware. So I, I talk about hardware, software and the operating system. Talk the hard brain function, right? Well, let me explain the okay. hardware is our, our airway. Uh, that's manifest in how our faces look, right? Okay. And the software are the muscles that uh, stimulate that growth very early on. Um, it, th- those are the muscles. That's the software. The and then the operating system is the behavior. Okay. So all three, a computer needs hardware, software, and operating system to function optimally. Need to hop, opt. Uh, they need to be optimal to be you know, function at the highest. Well, same thing with us, we we have hardware and software. and, And the problem in the disease management healthcare system, there's a lack of integration of these concepts. So if you're a surgeon, you're always looking at the hardware. I could fix the hardware. If you're an internist, you know, you're maybe you're looking just at, or neurologist, you're looking just at the software as if it's not connected to the hardware. And, you know, if you're, you know, an uh, allied health professional or physiologist, ph- physiologist, maybe you're, you're just looking at the the, um, uh, the behavior part of it. But we have to recognize all three to understand the problem with any given patient and then kind of step back and say, OK, how are we going to address this as a team that's integrated where I've, uh, that I can I'm limited in what I could do with the hardware um, Um, But I could bring somebody in that can understand that. So now we start getting into interdisciplinary uh, treatment, which is what I teach and practice, is that I can't do this by myself in a complex situation. Yes, a very simple problem we can fix, but these more complex problems that are long-term, that are related to chronic disease, really require more of a team approach where the pill is not the answer. It's then what is the answer, lifestyle? Well, first is proper assessment and diagnosis. Like, what's really going on with this individual? Yes, maybe you have a genetic predilection or a genetic condition um, that sets the tone. But for the most part, if you're looking at a perfectly healthy individual that can be chronically sick, let's say somebody that has sleep apnea that was healthy their whole lives, and you start looking back, the problem didn't just start. It's something that took decades to manifest to where now it's being recognized. It's kinda of like I always joke about how, you know, cancer, it's we have a healthcare system that treats the cancer now once it's metastatic, right? But how about when was stage one or carcinoma in situ? We really need to be looking at the problem earlier on. It's also less expensive for the healthcare system. If we're catching this problem earlier on than waiting till it's, you know, a chronic problem.
0: So how come the actors in the fifties and sixties were so much more preferred than or or now,
1: I understand They were more why, attractive to that right population of females that were just looking at just
0: you know, facial structure. Right. I I mean, why has have our faces changed so much? Specifically, is it lifestyle and what in the lifestyle? Environmental are? factors
1: that we have changed radically, starting from um, going from the hunter gather Paleolithic period um, that ended or started ending around ten to twelve thousand years ago in what became or is defined as the agricultural revolution. That's when we started civilization, right uh-huh. in the Fertile Crescent, and then we started controlling our food, and then we domesticating animals slowly over time, and then uh, and then about five hundred years ago, was the Industrial Revolution, that started changing the role of females in um, in the workforce and the advent of wet nurses, and um, and so there are many many factors, and it's its own discussion to be honest, but there are these changes. In the epigenetic or environmental um, uh, factors that have radically changed how we look, how we function, um, you know, how we sit, how we sleep. Those are all factors. Back in the day, you know, we didn't have chairs. You know, now you hear about how these modern chairs that uh, really address the way we're supposed to sit uh even commodes right you know you know about that the squatty potty uh how our intestines are supposed to really function right well uh, i mean we've radically changed with a lot of conveniences but there are these downstream consequences that are so nuanced that we've kind of really just now are starting to understand that maybe there's some bigger things that are going on here that we should look into. And that's what we're talking about on this podcast.
0: Yeah. And and I guess if I want to know all the specific things in our lifestyle that even, of course, big changes from now and the time in the fertile crescent, but then even from 50s and 60s to 90s. Yes. That I want to get into. It sounds like there's enough, though. That that's like a topic for its own I episode. Agree. Okay, let's so make that maybe
1: our next episode where we get into all these environmental uh, risk factors. I'll just throw out an example. We got two examples. Okay, real, real quick. Um, that modern medicine has, for instance, the uh, the the C section, where okay, it was okay for an emergency situation because he had a breach uh, delivery, right, to save mm-hmm. the moms and the babies life, it got to the point back in the 80s and the 90s, where now they were being scheduled. Oh, I've got a vacation. Let's take the baby at 38 weeks, you know, versus the 40th week or whatever, where that now a lot of hospitals have have reversed that. So sometimes we there are unintended consequences. It seems like it makes sense. What's the big deal? Let's go ahead now. Um. What is the big deal?
0: What's the downside in the season? We're going to
1: talk about that the next time. Or the yeah. other, the other uh, is nursing, you know, using bottles. Right. Or we talked about it last time. What's the types of is. foods and how we've how we've controlled our foods to the point where now we've changed how we even eat. That's created uh, intestinal dysbiosis and food allergies and sensitivities and elimination diets and things like that. Leaky gut, those are all uh, diseases that we didn't have that problem. Peanut allergies. There isn't a school now in the United States where you can't go into a classroom in elementary school where there's a caution that if someone has a peanut in that room, you might have to call 911. That never happened before.
0: Really? The allergies weren't? They're,
1: they're, they're, They're anaphylactic in nature. And so um, those are things that are recent, we're, we're allergies recent. We allergies had really? All these. So there are lots of examples. And so the questions are, you know, they're complex. So it's not one thing. Is that
0: a, is that a Darwinism thing? The reason we didn't have meaning that? No, I, I, I
1: don't know that it started, it's It's really? an environmental thing. Really? Okay. It's, it's what's happened with our environment. We're looking at, we could start talking about grains, how we've radically changed because we've engineered our food differently because it's more efficient to address world hunger. I mean, look, Whole Foods has made its profits and its name based on, you know, selling organic foods and non-GMO. So those are just some examples. I'm not saying it's a right or wrong, okay? I'm saying that we're recognizing that there are environmental risk factors from controlling our food supply, not just what's in it, but how the form that it's in, that we take it in, um, that have contributed to our chronic disease. Okay. So uh, let's talk about that maybe in the next episode.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I, yeah. We'll get back to the aesthetics. Interestingly, uh, one part of aesthetics that a lot of people look at is symmetry. Yes. W- why is symmetry considered aesthetic?
1: Well, I, you know, I will argue that it's not necessarily about uh, symmetry as much as it is about harmony. Let me explain the two. Meaning
0: mm, proportions. Yes. Okay.
1: Exactly. So, you know, um, the only thing that's symmetrical are man-made things. Buildings, structures, that, That's that's that we make symmetrical... Because we say that's the way it should look, but, but there's nothing in nature that's really symmetrical. I mean, you look at a beautiful oak tree out in the middle of an empty field.
0: Sure, no, I understand. It, what you're it, you saying, could take
1: a chimera, where you take a uh, you take. They've done studies where you take that tree that's uh, that's not symmetrical, but it's just beautiful, and you take half of it and duplicate it, and make it the other half. And you do both halves, right? And, and like people, you want one side of your face to look the same. To harmonize, the other. yes, to harmonize, right? You want there to be certain proportions. There's a whole science um, using finite element analysis that I think also, to some extent, is flawed because it's based on a construct. But nonetheless, You're talking
0: about the golden ratio, kind of golden thing ratio that like, goes okay. back
1: to Pericles, goes third, back to the third, Greeks, third. right? Right, exactly. Yeah, Looking it. at buildings looking at faces, looking at, uh, at nature. Again, they were talking more, not so much about symmetry, but harmony. Okay. So uh, when we're looking at uh, facial attractiveness and you look at something that's very, very attractive, it's usually someone that's also much healthier. And by the way, that can also um, uh, be a function of other senses like our smell, subconsciously, uh, pheromones. Um, or if let's say you're type two diabetic and you're, you know, at a bar and, and, you know, um, some attractive female comes up to you that maybe facially, you know, looks like, you know, you're attractive or, you know, you, you, whatever that case may be, not necessarily even looking at the face, but she subconsciously could smell ketone bodies because you're type two diabetic that immediately is like not good, you know, um, there's some, some conscious I'm not so attractive. Why? Because, you know, if, if you're, uh, you know, eventually going to have kids, you know, the kids may be at higher risk. The progeny may not, may, may be more diseased. So there are all kinds of studies looking
0: at that smells, right. sight. Right. Um, what, what you're saying is that, that, uh, different, uh, you portray certain things for, through manifestations at, at, like, uh, you were talking about the posture earlier, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I think posture is seen as attractive because it portrays confidence. But you're saying it it could be. Another theory is that it could be more about uh, how you breathe. Like this is putting you in a, a good position for your airway. Yes, yes, And yes. that might be why it's right, seen right. as attractive. Right, right. So let's
1: just say that we have an optimal facial, uh, uh, optimal facial growth on an individual, right? Let's just say that. If you look at that individual's posture, likely their head will be right over the shoulder because of the feedback loop from the motor cortex that's uh, basically governing where this eight to nine pound bowling ball, if you will, of the brain should be over the shoulders. It's most efficiently um, held over where the earlobes are about mid-shoulder and there is a feedback loop that allows that, that also pertains to health of C1 and C2, the cervical spine with a natural lordosis. That's the way it's supposed to be. That would be like what mom would say, that's a good posture. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a facial development profile, because your airway is small, because you had adenoid facies growth, like it's too long, you're gonna have a tendency to have a head tilt. Because when you have that head in that optimal uh, uh, approach, uh, optimal position, it's going to compress front to back the pharynx, the airway. There's going to be more turbulence, and there's this feedback loop that overtakes what's more important: taking that next breath. Right. So you tend okay. to slouch.
0: So just to get as much air as you it, can. Right, at this
1: you're doing it subconsciously. <laughs> it's called uh, the head tilt. So these are some sort of the things Got that we it. know diagnostically. And so then now you see that little old lady who's in her 90s that walks into the room, or that little old man with their head that's. You know, comes into the room 10 minutes before their body does, right? They're breathing. But that problem started way, way early. And those are some things that we want to address. You know, (laughs) the dental crowding and the temporomandibular joint health are really related all to those structures. But again, going back to healthcare, that's not the way we treat our patients. Right? We, you know, you have someone the chiropractor that treats the mm-hmm. cervical spine. You've got maybe the dentist or orthodontist that treats the very silent. Dental, it's very, very silent. No one's putting yeah. it together and okay. everyone has their theory. Oh, I've noticed this. Well, let's kind of stay a step back and take a really good science-based integrated approach. And you start seeing how intuitively logical it is when you understand how the body supposed to work and therefore how it's supposed to be treated. Um, where you recognize these global problems beyond just a siloed
0: view point of view sounds like if we could get the breathing right and the airway right we would not only look more attractive everyone but also function better we'd end up in the the er we'd end up in the hospital less take a lot of pressure off the healthcare system oh no no
1: question about it and of course it's not just as simple as that but i i'd like to summarize it this way that from first latch to last dispatch, or another way of saying it, from the first breath that you take to the last breath that you take, the most important function physiologically, and I don't think anyone can argue with this, is taking the next breath. Mm -hmm. Because that oxygen is what feeds every cell in our body through growth
0: and development and Beyond, right? and that's why we mouth breathe and give the head tilts because, like, we just want to get to the exactly. next breath. Exactly, yeah, right, sense. right. That's Laddam and Scott back
1: in the 1970s called that. Um, um, uh, had a term for, and they wrote wrote about that. And and it's, no matter what, the body is going to do what it takes to survive that next moment. Mm-hmm. Not worried about whether it's living a year from now. You just have to worry about getting your genes. To that next generation, then you
0: die, right? So, oh, uh, right. Interesting. Okay, yeah. that's why we don't really care what's opt or subconsciously we're gonna go for what just gets us there. Next step doesn't really matter what's optimal mm-hmm. if if we're just trying to survive. Okay, right, right, that right. makes sense. Right. um Earlier we we're talking about you said it's not as simple. I was as I was saying we're kind of of course for healthcare. A lot of different things can put you in the hospital. It's not just that. Yes. But I thought it was interesting. You were talking about type two diabetes, and that breathing has a lot to do with that. That's, that's, or, or not just type two diabetes, but um, you were saying hypertension. Yes. Uh, that's very interesting to me. I, I. I'm, can we uh, let's let's take a pause right now?
1: Okay. Um, because that's a really good topic to talk about yeah we'll pick and, up in the
0: next episode yeah
1: let's let's definitely do that and, and um, we'll go
0: into environmental risk factors why we look so different 50 or 50 years ago 10 years ago 20 years ago 30 years ago. we go through all that beautiful awesome we hope that the format
1: of our casual conversation provides a construct for how to think
0: about the problem rather than just saying how it is in order to stimulate a continuing conversation and give room to ask your own questions or comments, please follow us on Facebook at Mark a. Cruz DDS or on Twitter at Mark Cruz DDS.